Hello, all, and welcome to your weekly tech news hour. I'm your host, Rich Drafalino, and in the next 56 minutes or so, I guess, we're going to be talking about the weeks in tech news, if the name wasn't self-explanatory enough. Sometimes I like to spell it out uh, just a little bit. It's been a heck of a week going on right now, actually, as I am speaking. As these words come out of my mouth, go over through the air and into your radio transceiver, you can go on over and watch uh, Apple give the keynote at WWDC. I don't recommend it. It's pretty boring. Uh, but if that's your bag, you want to do that. So we'll be talking about that next week. We're actually going to have Allison Sheridan on the show. She's the host of News No Silicast. She's actually at WWDC uh, as we speak, um, and probably bef- and certainly before we spoke. She didn't just show up there, some sort of teleportation system, right as uh, I started going on the air. That would be absurd. So I don't know why you would have suggested it. Anyway, we'll be talking about that. But that doesn't mean there wasn't Apple news. Oh, no, of course. There's always stuff to talk about with Apple. And that's what we're going to get started off with the show with. The first thing I wanted to talk about was this was kind of downplayed or perhaps even I would uh, say dismissed by some of the uh, tech press. And And I think unduly there was an update to the iPod Touch release. Now, the iPod Touch... I think had a much more clear mission back when the iPhone first came out in 2007. Since then, it has not necessarily received timely updates. The last update to it before that was 2015. And this update is perhaps a little underwhelming. Uh, and that's what I think a lot of the tech press has kind of glommed onto, right? Apple basically just put in a A10 processor, which, hey, 10 sounds like a big number. Uh, but it's the processor that was in the iPhone 7. And if you're keeping track, we're on iPhone 10s, 10s's, 10r's, that kind of stuff. So it's been a little while since that processor came out. It's about three years old now. Not exactly the new hotness. So why get all excited about it? They also updated some of the capacity. It starts at 32 gigabytes now, which is like the absolute bare minimum that you would want on an iOS device or even an Android device, I would think. Um, some of you may like to live dangerously. Go with the 16 gig. That's not how I roll. That's not how I choose to live my life, but you do you. But what I think this really shows is, I, I, I hesitate to say the word prejudices of the tech press, but some of their biases, perhaps, biases, either way, that they have bias in this regard. When you are working in, uh, in a tech publication, I think generally you're, you're more apt to buy the latest and greatest. Sometimes you're reviewing the latest and greatest. So generally, you don't have something that's more than a year or two old at the latest. Maybe maybe you have a laptop that's a couple of years old now, long in the tooth. You're holding on to that MacBook Pro with the good keyboard. Don't blame you. Do not blame you at all. But it's easy to look at you know a, an iPod Touch in 2019 with a 2016 processor and say, Ugh, no thank you. Who would want to buy this? Well, I would say, let's look at what the iOS ecosystem looks like, right? Um, it's intentionally a high-end situation, right? Uh, iPhones don't come cheap. Apple has tried to. Apple fundamentally doesn't understand or maybe want to understand how to do a budget device because for them to do a budget device, they are still going to have to maintain a very high margin on that hardware, or at least historically that's always been their, their bag. 
And so, you know, they tried it with, uh, what was it, the iPhone 5C, which had the colorful plastic shells. And they were hoping to break into India and, you know, some of the more, uh, um, you know, these huge, huge markets, uh, but maybe that don't have quite the, the buying power of the U.S. or Europe or something like that. Wasn't the biggest success. Uh, they, you know, were going up against uh, Xiaomi, Huawei, Oppo, those kind of players that re they really know that space. They really know that market. And, you know, Apple wanted to make whatever percentage off of each sale and they weren't willing to compromise on price. And so there you go. The iPod Touch now starts at $200, which isn't certainly not, I mean, you know, in the broad scheme of things, I, I don't want to spend $200 on it right now. I'm probably not going to buy one. That's fine. Um, but it's certainly much cheaper than what, it, what an iPhone 10R, which isn't even the high-end model, you know, starts, what, four times that price? And if you get into the, the 10S, the 10S Max, 1X, you're looking at, you know, uh, you're looking at the four-digit uh, price code there. Not exactly affordable. What this does is give a modern, up-to-date iOS device that while, again, isn't running the new hotness, is certainly capable of running pretty much any app in the App Store, unless you're looking at really high-end games. But if you want to play your Fortnite, if you want to fool around with some uh, some funny camera filter apps, you want to do your Snapchatting, you can certainly do this on this device. And so so on a, on a budget play, it certainly makes a lot of sense. But I think it also plays into Apple's longer-term strategy, right? For the last 10 years, over 10 years, 12 years now, the the Apple has built itself on ever-increasing iPhone sales. And that's why they insist on that big margin because they are making money off of, they're making substantial amounts of money off of every single iPhone that they sell. That goes in their returns. You know, for the first 10 years of the iPhone, you know, we saw not hockey stick, but certainly a steady growth in iPhone sales. That is tapered off now. We're seeing decreasing iPhone sales in some quarters, notably in some holiday quarters. So, Apple has prioritized developing services, and they had a big event earlier this year that really prioritized services, right? So we've, we've already had Apple Music out there. We're going to have Apple Arcade as, a, as a, you know, a, a dedicated game store with games that they're developing just for that platform exclusives, if you will. They're getting into all sorts of uh, so, uh, other fields. I'm forgetting. Apple TV is another way to leverage that. Yes, they have an Apple TV actual box that you can buy you can view that on any number of devices but the ipod touch would certainly be eligible to watch that kind of stuff so they're getting into the services game they want to push that what better way to push that than a oh it's so you know compared to every other ios device this is so cheap i can just buy it and give it to my kid they're not connected to you know they're not connected to the overall internet i can monitor it better because it's on wi-fi as opposed to a cellular connection um which i have thoughts on but anyway you know, it's a it's a more kid-friendly device. Oh, and these kids happen to sign up for services, which give Apple a very steady revenue stream that supplements maybe the lack of margin on that device. The other thing that I think is really overlooked and is the least sexy use case I can think for this, but I'll make the argument, I'm all about not sexy, is in retail. If you go to any big box store and you say, hey, I ordered this thing online or can you scan this for me? If you go to... Target, Kohl's, you know, whatever, your big box store of choices, I betrayed mine. They're probably pulling out a some sort of phone, some sort of telephonic device. And it's just, you know, it's just whatever. It's an iPhone. It's an Android phone. I was at Kohl's yesterday and they had Windows phones, which I just wanted to applaud. I saw that 
that flat modern UI, and I was just, I was like, well, that's one way to get no one to steal those. Uh, so very smart on Cole's part. But anyway, you know, they, they hook them up to a custom barcode scanner or something like that, and they distribute them. I, you know, a couple years ago, I remember seeing an iPhone 4 or something like that at a Kohl's. So this also fits into that where you, I'm, I'm sure companies don't want to spend to get full-on iPhones. They don't need that cellular connectivity. You're always operating in a store which has its own, you know, internal Wi-Fi for employees and, and that kind of stuff and their services. iPod Touch is perfect. The existing iPod Touch was too old. Wasn't going to be able to be updated to the latest iOS. They needed something. They're going to sell fleets of these to these big box stores, and Apple's very happy about that. Also very weird about the iPod Touch. They basically didn't update anything else other than the processor. The cameras are all the same from the, the old 2015 one. Screen's all the same. It has the same bezel-y design, which I don't mind. I'm not a, a bezel-less fetishist. Don't mind a little bezel. Um... But it also has a headphone jack, which is something that seemingly Apple had the bravery to take away from all of its other devices or is in the process of taking it away uh, from its other iOS devices. Interesting to see a new product update with a headphone jack. Obviously, they are just using the same uh, you know, phone case, so who cares, right? But but I think it's it's been underreported that, again, this isn't a make-or-break thing this isn't you know i don't know how much is going to impact apple's financials but i don't think it's a dumb move i don't think it's a silly move by apple to update this ipod touch i think when you're a company that's banking on services having a very cheap way a very cheap entry point relatively speaking very cheap entry point into that services catalog that still is locked down that still is your ios environment because while apple music is available on other platforms namely android I doubt we are going to see something as complex as games or something like that going on there. The other thing that I thought was really uh, interesting this week and, uh, you know, in Apple news, and we'll, we'll touch on this, I think, a, a little quicker, is that Apple kind of made its first public response uh, in an EU uh, European Union uh, antitrust investigation that was spurred by a complaint from Spotify. So, I think everyone realizes now, you know, Spotify is one of the, the big streaming players. Not a surprise there. Um, but they've been a, a powerhouse in Europe long before they ever came to the United States. They kind of pioneered that market in Europe. And uh, and they, they have a very definitive presence there that I think Apple is still trying to chip away at. But they filed a complaint basically saying Apple's App Store policies are unfair. Uh, they They not only own the App Store, but they own competitive apps within it and they prioritize them and apple was coming out saying listen we approve you know well over 60 percent of all apps that come in their app updates you know the ones that we do reject generally it's because of buggy code or you know there's obvious security flaws you know the kind of things you would want a curated app store not to have in it so okay i can accept that and then they also pointed out that there are dozens if not hundreds of apps that are competitive that have been around in the app store for years that sit there and that's where i think it gets a little disingenuous shock i know for apple to make that claim because yes i can i don't have to use apple music i don't have to use apple mail i don't have to use apple maps whatever the i don't have to use safari uh, i can download weird there's a there's a microsoft edge app browser and I don't know who you people are that are using that, but God bless you, uh, because you just don't like good experiences. I get it. Um, it's going to be okay. Anyway, but you can choose to use whatever browser you want, right? It's fine. 
Why is this such a big deal? Well, the problem becomes, yes, I can download those apps. However, if I click on a, you know, a, uh, a mail link or I click on a link within an app, guess what app it opens up? It's not the browser that I want to use. There's no way to change any of the default apps, basically, on iOS. And the, the ways that companies get around it are big, giant companies like Google that kind of have their own little private workarounds, right? So if you, are, you, know, you, you use Chrome on an iPhone and you use the Gmail app, it's smart enough to kind of call specifically for Chrome. But if you're using Firefox, you're out of luck. And so that's where it really gets disingenuous because not only does then Spotify have to combat with, hey, this literally comes on the phone and it bugs you to subscribe. You know, Apple Music bugs you to subscribe to it if you don't, like when you, when you first start up an iPhone. So it's, it not only is it another step there, but then it's not like Apple is paying whatever. You know, if someone subscribes... So how it works is if someone subscribes to Spotify in their iOS app, Apple gets a kickback or it takes a cut of whatever is paid to them, right? So Spotify either have to maintain the same margin, has to increase their price by whatever that percentage is. It depends on how long you're subscribing to that service. Or they make less margin. Apple doesn't have to worry about that. 100% of everything goes to Apple, right? So again, that's where it gets disingenuous. Now, do I want when I open up, when I get a new iPhone... Do I want the Microsoft browser ballot that Microsoft had to do when they ran into all their problems with Internet Explorer in Europe? I don't think that's exactly the most elegant solution either. But I, I would, yeah, I, Apple's not shooting straight at part of their response. And again, this is public facing, right? This is this is to uh, to win the hearts and minds of their uh, beloved Apple faithful. So, is this a legal argument? I doubt it. Will this all play out? Will there be a settlement where Spotify gets a giant bag of cash? Sure. I think we can all be cynical enough to see possibly where that's going. But, I, you know, the EU has enough muscle and they like to, you know, flex their antitrust, anti-competitive uh, laws over there that possibly maybe it could lead to some changes in the App Store down the road if this gets enough critical mass, hopefully But for that to happen, Spotify can't say yes to a giant bag of cash. We will see how that plays out. Next up, last week we talked a little bit about, over the last two weeks, I guess, we talked about some of the kerfuffles and statements being made about uh, this T-Mobile Sprint merger, right? The possibility of going down from four national carriers, cell carriers, to three. Very interesting. A lot of... Potential problems, less competition in the market, not a fan. But Sprint may not be hot garbage in some people's opinion. So maybe that would be nice. Who knows? The uh, FCC chairman, IG Pai, has said he's, uh, after some changes to the merger deal, has said, yeah, we're, we're on board for this. Let's do this. He gave like a Bill Clinton, like half thumbs up, kind of a grimace, held up a giant mug. He said he's on board. United States Justice Department, not sure. They're now saying that as part of the condition for their merger, they want the companies to set up, basically lay the groundwork for a for a fourth national carrier. So for the combined Sprint T-Mobile giant to come across, they're going to have to divest some spectrum and essential, or, or allow for another company to, with the resources to really take advantage of it, to enter into a, a virtual network uh, agreement, basically. And that's what Boost Mobile and Virgin Mobile and all those other brands that aren't Sprint but really are. That's what all those companies are, right? They have a they're they're virtual network operators, and so they're running all of their data over Sprint's network, but they just pay a bulk sum 
to whoever owns the pipes, so to speak, and then they can operate it however they want after the fact. And so that's what the F, uh, the uh, excuse me, the U.S. DOJ was looking for. And now a new wrinkle into the story, which I think is super interesting, is that Amazon has basically raised its hand and says, "Ooh, me, me, we want to do that." Interesting. Amazon has been trying to get into some sort of phone game for quite a while. We all remember the uh, the glorious failure that was the Fire Phone, right? I think it's right up there with the Microsoft Kin in my favorite never-had-a-chance <laughs> technology. Uh, and so they, they wanted to be, first they wanted to be a smartphone maker. Um, that bombed spectacularly. They've been able to be successful on the low end with some of their tablet stuff. So they, they do have hard, I mean, they certainly have hardware chops, right? I mean, they, you have all these Echo devices that are out there now. There's a new one just released we'll talk about it in a little bit, I think. So the idea that they could put together a carrier and put their own phones on it, that in and of itself is interesting. But do we want Amazon, the harvester, you know, again, another company, that would be like, to me, seeing Google or Facebook also raising their hand and go, ooh, ooh, me. From a customer experience perspective, I actually think this could work relatively well. I feel like Amazon would know how to one courts the existing I guess the existing the, the less internet savvy demographic but certainly anyone that's comfortable shopping on amazon.com they're going to roll that in there I'm sure there's going to be some sort of prime tie-in if it ever happens uh, where you get 10 gigs of free data if you're a prime member or something something crazy like that um, or maybe you know you get unlimited texting as part of your prime whatever remember when we had to yeah whatever texting we used to charge for it so I think the having Amazon jump in there to be that fourth national carrier, especially if they can get some spectrum of their own, they're not just operating on kind of that T-Mobile network, you know, the Sprint combined Sprint T-Mobile network, I think could be very interesting. The, the problem is it's just because, oh, let's help this giant company that already runs 40% of the internet, that already is destroying mom and pop retail, that already has this... Uh, <laughs> this protection scheme that is Amazon Prime. Let's give them more sway over our individual lives. Let's give them more way to ingest data about people. You know, I don't know how the optics of that work in 2019. If this happens, I don't know, five years ago. Amazon's a much different company, obviously. But I feel like all of these big giant tech companies, whether we're talking about outside of Microsoft, really, which is the most bizarre thing, but Google, Facebook, Amazon, Uber, Let's throw them in there where we would have been cautiously excited about the idea of them becoming a national carrier, just having just having a, an interesting new product or an interesting new line of business, because that's really what this is for Amazon. I think instead we, we have to ask ourselves, why are we letting these big companies get bigger? I, I, I mean, to me, that's the first question I would ask is, yes, we have a fourth national carrier. Yes, that will, you know, Amazon is, is very comfortable operating at no margin. You know, they will sell you something that costs them a dollar for a dollar and one cent. And they're perfectly happy with that for years. That was always the potential for an investor revolt, I guess, against Amazon was that they would have all this revenue and like no profit. I mean, even today, 
outside of Amazon Web Services, that's the bulk of all of their operating profit, right, is basically that they run a substantial portion of the Internet. Everything else, it's not exactly a loss leader, but it's it's very close in a lot of instances. And I, and I certainly think Prime started that way if it's not that all, still, you know, just keep you in that Amazon ecosystem. And that's what they're going to do if they become, you know, if, if this goes through. Now, again, this is... Someone reporting to, I believe it was Reuters. Yeah, Reuters is reporting that Amazon is saying, ooh, 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 me, fourth national carrier, we'll do it tomorrow, please. But is that extra competition worth, yet again, big giant company that owns so much of our lives uh, becoming bigger and arguably less transparent? And then the other thing that gets into is all of these, maybe outside of T-Mobile for now, all of these carriers now, all of these internet comp- or you know these internet providers, internet service providers. Let's keep revising it, Rich. All of these companies now are content companies. AT and T owns HBO. Verizon owns a bunch of weird assets. They tried to do Go ninety streaming, didn't work. Um, but all of these, you know, all of these ISPs want to be media companies, and Amazon is a, is a media company in some respects. They have their own content house. They're putting out stuff on Prime all the time. They win awards. And so now this is, interestingly perhaps, is not an ISP looking to become to gather more content assets to find another way to, you know, potentially have the spectrum or the, the specter of something like zero rating, which T-Mobile tried. The idea of, hey, we own this service. Let's not count that use of that service's data against any kind of data cap that we have. I think that the specter of that is very real if Amazon becomes, you know, a, a national carrier as part of this merger. But then the other question is, I don't know who set up, you know, the bags and bags of cash to do that. You know, Sprint wants to buy the Boost Mobile business that uh, T-Mobile and Sprint have said they're going to spin out as part of this merger. Analysts are saying it's worth about $3 billion, $4.5 billion, you know, if we're talking about Spectrum on top of that. I mean, Amazon has that money. They can shake out the couch cushions, I'm sure. Jeff Bezos can peel off a little stock and, uh, you know, fling it at uh, the merging T-Mobile Sprint, and all of a sudden they're, they're a carrier. I mean, I guess in the broad scheme of things, in, in giant uh, dystopian companies, right, um, these mega corps, if you will, if I'm going to sound like a 90s sci-fi show. You know, that's that's not a ton of money. Again, $4.5 Still, in an absolute sense, yes, an insane amount of money. But I'm not sure who else is set up uh, to enter into this race. And to be a success... I mean, the, the part of the argument against... You know, how do you argue against Amazon when it seems like they would be set up to be very successful and be very competitive, which is what you want. The last thing you want is to spin this off to, I can't even think of, to IBM. IBM's not buying them. That'd be the worst idea ever. But a company that has no retail presence, basically, that has no idea of what they're doing, and then they fail, right? And then the, the, the assets just get reabsorbed by one of the other three major carriers. You don't want that. You want this company to be set up, or this carrier to be set up for success, but do we want to make Amazon more successful, I guess, is, is the question. The other thing we talked about last week uh, that we have some follow-up news on is Computex is happening. 
or was happening last week. It finished up on Friday. But there were some interesting announcements. We talked about some of the chip announcements because I'm a huge dork and I love that. But one of the interesting kind of narratives to come out of that uh, from the uh, technological press is that laptops are getting weird again. What do I mean by that? Well, for a long time, we, we've like figured out the laptop, right? There, there's not a lot of surprise. I mean, Apple kind of shook it up, I think, with the MacBook Air back in, what, 2012, when they kind of refreshed that and made it not a ridiculous laptop that your CEO owns to show that he's rich and made it kind of the thing that every college student buys. Uh, it's had a, you know, and then every other Windows OEM came out. They The Intel ratified this uh, Ultrabook standard, which basically was like, hey, here's how you make a MacBook Air Use this low-power processor, you know, solder the RAM on, SSDs, certain level of screen, whatever. And we've, we've seen refinements, interesting refinements on that. We've arguably seen Apple get out-designed over the, the course of the next uh, seven years. Gradually, very, very gradually. But you're seeing very interesting uh, devices from, of all people, like Dell EMC or something like that. But like we know, you know, when you, we know, we know a, you know, your typical laptop is going to be, it's going to be 13 inches. It's going to have a 1080p screen or thereabouts. You have a big trackpad. The keyboard's not going to be total garbage unless somehow Apple figured out how to make a garbage keyboard. It's going to have a touch screen. Da, 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 da. Clamshell design, right, though? That's the one thing. I mean, like the big thing in the last like three years has been like shaving off bezel. And Dell was really aggressive with that and everyone else followed suit. And now nothing has bezels anymore. Evil bezels. I don't care. But now we're seeing at Computex some interesting ideas coming out. Uh, One was uh, Asus came out with the ZenBook Pro Duo. Now, last year, Asus came out with a laptop where the the touchpad on it, you know, the the little mouse input um, itself was a 1080p display, like a five inch. I, I think they just took like an old phone panel and threw it in there. Um, and you could do, you either use it as a secondary display, like you had two monitors literally built into this laptop, or they had their own little weird app store where you could have a calculator app or a, they always put in a stocks app. I don't know who is, what is the use case? I Stop making stocks app. We know how to find stock quotes. <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> but anyway, they had their weird little app store and some people bought it. I've recently been in the market for a new laptop. I certainly looked at it, but you take a pretty big hit on your battery and that kind of stuff. And it, it, it wasn't for me. It seemed a little gimmicky. Well, Asus said, hey, <laughs> if you like gimmicks, check out this ZenBook Pro Duo. Instead of keeping with the traditional touchpad in the front, keyboard in the back, the laptop mullet, if you will. This brings the keyboard fully to the front, kind of over to the left. There's a traditional trackpad over to the right, so kind of echoing how you would set up a keyboard and mouse for a right-handed user uh, and like a desktop setup. But then on the top of it, there is a second giant display. It's like four inches tall, and it runs the whole length of the laptop. And the idea is you can fully extend the, the, the complete desktop experience. So you can move windows down there and that kind of stuff. Or again, they're coming up with their kukumani app store that you can download dedicated apps to that um i have a number of questions about who wants this i the the use case i always see for this is if you're a digital artist 
you can set your palettes down there. And, and that's true, right? If you've used an app like uh, Photoshop or Final Cut or which you wouldn't be running on a Windows desk, but whatever, uh, you know, Adobe Premiere, whatnot. There are a lot of kind of side panes and stuff like that you have to manage. And if you're just using it all on one screen, you just put one in this corner, one in this corner, and it's all good. But the idea of being able to have it in view, um, but have a more clean primary workspace, I guess, I guess that makes sense. I always think these creative use cases, though, are a little tortured at best. But I'll allow it. Um, where what gets interesting though is when you think about this in terms of this is kind of a market where and, and Ace is not alone, right? We've we've heard rumors that HP uh, and uh, and Dell EMC are also kind of in the works for these two screen laptops. And Intel showed off this really interesting, I think it was called Project Honeycomb laptop, where they kind of took this to the next level, where instead of it just being the classic clamshell laptop just with this big secondary display and a weird layout on the bottom, it's a two hinge design. So the where the the second display starts is a second hinge, so you can tilt that up, which makes sense given that if you have a display on a keyboard deck, the angle you're going to be looking at it is always going to be horrible, and unless you have a really high end panel, it's going to look washed out and bad. Um, so this has you know kind of keyboard lays flat, the secondary display lays at like a 45 degree angle, and then there's your your more traditional hinge for the main display on top of that. Where this gets weird and probably will never happen, and if it does, it will work horribly is Intel also integrated eye tracking into this where it can tell which of the two displays you're looking at and switch the keyboard and mouse inputs accordingly. That sounds like something that can only go horribly wrong. <laughs> so I, I really doubt that if this ever becomes more than just a prototype and becomes kind of like a standard for weird laptops, um, that you know maybe we can happen that but this is an instance with this kind of secondary display taking off uh and this kind of weirdification of laptops is weirdly something that apple was way out in front of and in my opinion did pretty poorly and that's with the macbook pro touch bar right that's a secondary display that sits on you know kind of the deck of the laptop and that can kind of extend some functionalities and be, you know, dynamically configurable and that stuff. The issue, <laughs> the diff big difference is the touch bar is like 50 pixels. And, and the reason I, I guess I'm skeptical about this, this trend is Apple pretty much is a, is a vertically integrated company, right? They have, you know, good relationships with all their devs. They own an app store. They can really push. They have unified hardware. You don't have to worry about different implementations. And they couldn't get developers to be interested in using that secondary display, really, if you look at it. Outside of Microsoft and Apple itself, touch bar support is very spotty, and I know because I use one for work, and I wish it did more. But in a world where 90% of people are in a web browser or in some sort of weird web version of an app, you know, those kind of displays are completely numb. And so maybe the approach that the PC makers are kind of looking at it. Intel is kind of spearheading here is don't make it this weird dedicated thing. You have to program for it. Just make it a secondary display. We, we know how we've negotiated that a long time ago. Windows support for, for multiple displays is, is deep, easily configurable. If you've used a you know, second monitor at any point, you know how it works. So maybe we will see that, but I love that we've reached a point, and maybe this is just because we've reached good enough performance 
on the the CPU side and the GPU side that we can now, you know, kind of to get people to upgrade, we have to be weird. And I like that. I like some hardware innovation on a design level. Because again, we've we've all the OEMs have figured out, hey, here's how you rip off and or do better than a MacBook or a MacBook Pro or whatever. We they've all figured that out. They've all figured out how to do unibody aluminum designs. Yeah, some of them do carbon fiber. Great. But we've we figured out that kind of that material design of it. And now let's think about how we want to use these devices and design around that. And then Apple will come out with something that's way better designed, and then everyone will take five years to catch up to it. Maybe. Who knows? One of the big news items you may have seen this week, uh, just over the weekend, in fact, not this week, I guess a weekend, was on Saturday there was a really big outage of a lot of online services. Um, YouTube, Discord, uh, which if you game at all, you know what that is. If you don't, don't worry about it. Um, Shopify, Gmail, just a, just a whole rash, Vimeo, or just a whole rash of services were down uh, starting about, uh, I think it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, going into the early evening for several hours, and kind of people didn't know what was up. Turned out that it was tied back to Google Cloud Services. So you heard me talking about AWS a while ago. If you're not familiar, Google kind of runs their own version of AWS. AWS, I guess, is the Kleenex in this situation. Uh, but Google, Microsoft, Amazon, those are the three, traditionally thought of as the three big public cloud players. Google services went down for multiple hours. And as a result, people just completely lost the ability to use apps. Now, this is not uncommon, right? We've seen this with any, you know, you name your public cloud provider. Outages do happen. If you run a business based on those, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to have some sort of failover so that another system will kick up and you don't completely go down and that kind of stuff. Very few people do. That's a whole other issue. But what I think is really interesting about this is that the footprint of this wasn't just online. You know, it's, it's one thing if you can't watch a YouTube video or you, can, or you can't upload something to Vimeo. That might affect your job. That might be supremely inconvenient. You know, if you need to get that video up at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Vimeo's down. Ugh, that stinks. We've all, we've all been there. You can't be on your Discord chat while you're watching someone play Call of Duty. That's a bummer. Right. Where it becomes very interesting to me, though, and I think that we're going to see as these kind of public cloud implementations really take over a lot of business computing, you know, with Shopify being down, that was a different story. That wasn't just I can't upload my video. I can't, you know, I can't watch my YouTube. I can't access my Gmail. Again, that's bad. Gmail, Gmail, Gmail being down very bad. But with Shopify, it affected brick-and-mortar retail, right? That's a back-end that's used for credit card processing. So for four hours, a lot of businesses just couldn't accept payment for stuff. And I think that is the more troubling aspect for that, right? Because, you know, if you're, again, if you're a big-box retailer, you have, I hope, some sort of system in place so that if whatever your payment back-end goes down, you can default to something else, and it'll be slower, and it'll be worse, Maybe there's all sorts of compliance issues that go along with it, but you can still take the money because that's kind of your job as a retailer. For a mom and pop shop, that's why you go to Shopify, right? Is you you don't have access to build your own payment backend or that kind of stuff. And to not be able to accept credit card payments, huge deal. 
even if just just quote unquote for four hours. And I think as we see more and more businesses, more and more small businesses become comfortable accepting cloud, these kind of outages, you know, where where the cloud kind of meets reality. Um, I guess this could be considered kind of an edge computing use case. I, I don't want to get into the semantics of that. Someone in IT will be very mad at me if I say it's edge computing, but I'm going to say it. This kind of edge computing use case is only going to become more and more common. And I wonder... One, like how big of an outage are we going to need to see for there to be a kind of a a non-IT solution to this, right? Are we going to see, you know, like you have your, you know, you, you run everything on some sort of Google back-ended service, but you can buy some insurance or, or maybe Shopify offers some, some insurance that says, hey, if one cloud goes down, we have a backup on AWS or Azure, which is Microsoft's public cloud, ready to go. That, to me, is very interesting. It's kind of dorky, um, but I know a lot of people were affected by it. The tweets were blowing up on it. And, again, when it hits brick-and-mortar retail, that's where it changes the story. Outages happen all the time. Outages are kind of boring news stories. It's like, okay, I, I couldn't get online. When it hits the, when, you know, when it hits, uh, the real, quote-unquote, the real world, that's a different story. So I, I, I thought that was really interesting, and it just happened over this weekend. So kind of keep that in mind. Uh, next time we see another big outage. Another big thing that happened this week, you know, we're talking about, Am- or, uh, excuse me, Apple uh, being hit up now with some antitrust, anti-competitive investigations in the EU. I kind of, I kind of talked about, you know, Amazon being a a national, you know, cell carrier potentially problematic. Well, evidently, the U.S. government is thinking about looking into some of these giant, giant companies because there was a report out, I believe it was on uh, Bloomberg, no, the Washington Post, excuse me, uh, that basically said the, you know, kind of the two big agencies that would be handling any kind of anti-competitive, antitrust investigation, that would be the DOJ and the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, have kind of divvied up Google and Amazon uh, amongst each other. For any potential uh, investigations. Now, I guess on a practical level, this makes a lot of sense because these are giant companies and you need some kind of court, you know, you need coordination. You don't want people duplicating effort on what's already going to be a nightmarishly large investigation. But the idea that, you know, they don't they don't take this step. They, they don't start divvying up responsibilities for these companies unless they're pretty certain something's coming down the pike. Right. And so that's what gets really really interesting to me um so the the ftc is going to be looking over amazon and we're going to have the doj looking over google so what what i'm interested in seeing in the near term is you know when when do we see the paperwork getting filed on this when do we see some kind of discovery some kind of maybe maybe it's already happening in the background right we've heard that the ftc has a fine locked and loaded for Facebook. They accounted for it in their earnings report, a multi-billion-dollar fine, which again for Facebook is pocket change. But you know, kind of locked and loaded, just kind of waiting on this. Is it a case of there? Are, you know, the FTC is applying all the resources to Facebook before you know they kind of shift over uh, and possibly start looking more into Amazon. I'm not sure, but uh, an interesting uh, a little bellwether there to see um, you know where the regulatory winds are blowing. I don't think it's just a narrative anymore, right? I don't think it's a narrative that we're all getting 
you know, we're, we're sick of Facebook with all their privacy stuff and Cambridge Analytica is scary. I don't know what it means, but it's scary. I think there is not just a, a public will, but I think now, uh, you know, governmental on a number of levels. And you know, it's one thing for the EU. The EU is a little, it's a reputation for being uh, a little uh, regulatory crazy, perhaps, um, being very strict with their anti-competitive laws. The U.S., uh, we're pretty cool. <laughs> we'll get you a little, we'll let you get away with a lot of shady stuff, turns out. <laughs> but this is an interesting signal, and I am, again, I'm not, and I'm not rooting for necessarily, I, I don't know if the solution is to break up, you know, quote-unquote break up these companies, a la an Elizabeth Warren. Do I want, though, for us to have a serious public policy discussion about how these companies are impacting competition and, you know, kind of the world at large? Yeah, I, I think that that's that's very good. And if that's if nothing else comes out of either of these potential investigations, I think that is a good thing. Another thing that uh, I have. All sorts of feels about in future dystopia news. Today, uh, the Lockport City School District in New York, you know it. Uh, is turning on a facial tracking system for the eight schools in their district. Uh, it's part of a pilot project, but basically they're just doing troubleshooting. They're not like seeing if, if it's going to happen. They've spent the money on the system. I mean, it's going to be the first. Full scale. Facial tracking system deployed. In a U.S. school district. I don't know if it's worldwide or just the U.S. I'm just going to say the U.S. because that's what I know. And so the way it's set up, this the, this isn't designed to, you know, uh, eliminate the need for people lying about hall passes or something like that. The, I, the, idea, the stated intention of this system is not to track students. In fact, they claim that they are not tracking any students. What this is designed for is to... Uh, highlight people that shouldn't be on school property, uh, something like level two and level three sex offenders. That was in the reporting. I don't know what those levels correspond to. I'm assuming heinous and horrible crimes, and they should not be anywhere near a school. So, again, that seems like okay. Uh, people that have been suspended, whether students or staff, for whatever reason, uh, those can be fed into the database and kind of ID'd very quickly. Um, basically, anyone that's been says don't be on school property, the idea is that this would either positively track them in the case of sex offenders, you know, there's a, there's a registry of those. We have their, their images and we can match those up and no, you know, positive identification. The other one would be, okay, this doesn't track with, you know, any listed student. So who is this person? Let's, you know, escort them off the grounds or something like that. The other thing that's interesting or notable, I guess, interesting, maybe implies too much of a positive connotation is that the system is also set up to do object recognition, and so it can recognize 10 types of guns uh, that it sees, you know, kind of in its computer vision model. And again, I, I feel like the, obviously the intention of this is for child safety, right? We don't want sex offenders, we don't want guns in our school. Most of us don't want guns in our school. Some of us don't want guns in our school. Let me dial that back. At least one person. I don't want guns in schools. Okay, I've said it. Some of you may agree with me. There we go. But is the solution to... Because 
while you you can say that there is no facial tracking of students, there is like there it's reading kids' faces. It's keeping those records for sixty days, supposedly before they're deleted, which is going to be handled by a school IT team, which I'm going to assume is going to let some stuff fall through the cracks. I'm sorry. At least in my school, you know, they couldn't set up an internet filter right. I was able to get on AOL Instant Messenger Quick Buddy all the time. They're the team that's now going to be, admittedly, it's for a school district, not for an individual school. That's a much more higher level IT position. But they're going to be responsible for the, the integrity of the data of potentially very, one, of all images of minors, and two, potentially in some very sensitive situations. So I'm very dubious about that. And then the other thing, and the bigger issue with a lot of these facial tracking systems is it's been demonstrated over and over again, study after study, that these kind of systems are only as good and reproduce any biases that are in their data set. And what I mean by that is the way these facial tracking systems work is they're trained, uh, they, they, they'll take the image and run it through a neural network, which is trained on a massive database of images so it can recognize what a nose is, what an eye is, that kind of stuff. Those data sets are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of images generally for the system to be very good. The issue is, is that again, study after study has shown that these facial tracking systems generally tend to give much more false positives on people of color and specifically women of color and could potentially then cause those students to, I don't want to say discriminate against, but going to be flagged as someone that's not supposed to be at school and all of a sudden has to go through, you know, another process where they say, no, 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 I'm a student, you know. So there's all that problem. We already know these data sets are problematic. I've seen no documentation that there isn't going to be a preponderance of white dude faces in this training set. That's not just going to replicate prioritizing identifying white dudes as opposed to people of color, women of color. The other issue that I have with this, and this is more of like a local politics issue. I don't know how much we want to get in the weeds on this, but the money that paid for this was like a $1.5 million system, which again, when we're talking about a $4.5 billion acquisition of Boost Mobile doesn't seem like a lot of money, but for a school district is a heck of a lot of money. This was money that was identified by the state for, you know, kind of technological infrastructure and equipment uh, for helping students to learn. So the idea being, hey, you can maybe upgrade to fiber in your school or maybe give you every student laptops or upgrade the laptops that you're giving to your students or something along those lines. Hell, we'll refit the computer lab. Do we even have computer labs anymore? I haven't been to school in a while. And they, the school district decided to take that money and use it to establish, uh, you know, kind of a facial uh, tracking system. So... You know, I guess if the, the story comes out that this system, you know, catches someone that was bringing a gun to school, well, we see that cropping up. But to me, I think it will be more in the unspoken. The, the issue with that is, yes, you have that one success and maybe that saves lives. Maybe that's worth it. Maybe that makes all of these other privacy concerns go away. I have two small kids. I want them to be safe. This is, this is where these kind of systems, it becomes hard to have an honest debate about privacy when you have that kind of emotional blackmail card to constantly throw at people. And so, but is, is that worth, you know, potentially harassing, uh, students of color over the long term? 
Then the other issue is if you're not, like on a very technical level, if you're not saving the images that you're capturing uh, that are identified as students, you're also not improving the system at all because all of these systems, all neural networks, all these kind of machine learning models, they're very, they require giant data sets and they're very brittle. So the more information you can feed to it, generally, the better it is at being predictive. However, if you're not feeding new information on it as your you know, student body changes, then it just kind of stays at the same level. So that, like on a technical level, is also problematic. But uh, significant, I think, that we're seeing this deployed in schools. I sadly don't think it will be the last one um, Unless this is a complete disaster, you know, this, like I said, this is a pilot trial. They're going to be, you know, basically doing troubleshooting, check to see what, how uh, uh, implementers are following responses. If they identify someone that's not supposed to be on the grounds, you know, like a, like a sex offender or someone that was suspended from the school, how they react to that, what are their reporting mechanisms. But in the fall, essentially, it's going to be going uh, into full effect. I just realized it's also over summer, so it's probably only affecting summer school students, which is why they're testing it right now. So we will see. And uh, we're, we're getting low on time here, but there was one other, at least one other story that I wanted to uh, to check here uh, before we hit the two o'clock hour uh, here on Weekly Tech News Hour. Hope you've been enjoying it so far. And the last one is there was a report out uh, by security researchers as a firm called Digital Shadows, which, again, I, I'm glad that a 13-year-old founded a security firm, but we're adults here. We Maybe, maybe, maybe the name's not great. Um, they found that over 2.3 billion files that contain sensitive information, we're talking credit card numbers, medical information, even patent filings, which is really bizarre to me, are essentially exposed online thanks to poorly configured uh, cloud or um, online storage systems, which are cloud storage systems, but whatever. And this is something that, again, it, kind of going back to that, that, that cloud outage, I think we're going to see that the the configuration error is going to be the new the new hack, right? Because we're all used to seeing, oh, there's only 6.4 billion files. Turns out we're hacked, and you got to change your email password again because it's all out in the open. And we're seeing a lot of bad security practice kind of magnified by exposure to the internet in these situations, right? Because for a long time, if you had a, a poorly configured file share or something like that, yeah, that's bad. You don't want, certainly don't want that to happen, but it would only affect if you were in that office, right? So people of different uh, position levels maybe could access files that they didn't have access to. And you would probably need some sort of technical know-how to know how to exploit that with poorly implemented security anyway, right? You need to have the will to look for that locally on site at a, like a business or, or whatnot. And so, yes, bad you are a bad security or, you know, IT admin if you did that, but not the end of the world. Very, very little surface area. Turns out when you put stuff to the cloud, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, a, a AWS S3 bucket or something like that, when you do that, there's a, there's a little search engine called Shodan, which I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's basically a search engine for Internet of Things and kind of connected online services, and it makes it very, very easy just do a search for, hey, show me like every Samsung camera uh, that's connected to the internet that doesn't have a password. There you go. Show me every printer that doesn't have any kind of password. I'm going to print, uh, subscribe to PewDiePie 50,000 times to all of those connected printers. 
indicates that they then did the malicious thing. And so I think we're we've already seen a, a number of these instances. It's 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 almost worth not commenting on the the what was interesting about this digital shadow report. Seriously, guys, change the name. Is that they found that this was increasing, right? So they did a study in 2018. They found 1.5 billion files like this exposed online, completely unprotected, and it's gone up now to 2.3. So again, this isn't getting better. And it will only get better, I think, as more and more kind of kind of sunlight gets uh, gets shown on this. Not something I'm looking forward to, uh, but again, uh, you know, it's not it's not future dystopia news uh, if it's hopeful in any way. So that just about brings us to the end here of your weekly tech news hour. There were so many stories we couldn't get to, so many so many wonderful ones. We had more reports on Huawei. Turns out they're going to stop uh, letting us get rare earth metals from China, which is a big deal. Uh, you should look up what rare earth metals are if you don't know already. Um, Amazon has a cool new alarm clock thing, whatever. Uh, Uber is being doing Uber things to drivers, a- aka not good things. Uh, not surprising. But if you want to hear more of this, uh, you remember to subscribe uh, to uh, Weekly Tech News Hour in your podcatcher of choice. You can get that uh, kind of delivered to you. You don't have to hear it on the radio if you don't want to. But if you want to, I'm here Mondays, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're not on Easter time and you're listening to this at WRUW.org, I salute you. But thank you so much for listening. Uh, We have Not Your Grandmother's Classical Music coming up next. So if you want to find me on Twitter, you can find me at uh, Mr. Anthropology. That's M-R Anthropology. Uh, And you can find all of my amazing tweets about, uh, I don't know, I have two kids. It's usually some pictures or humorous anecdotes about that. Um, But until the next time we meet, which is Mondays, 1 to 2, I invite all of you to have the most super and sparkly of days. <laughs>